Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. We're honored to have with us today Richard L. Anderson. He's the director of a new film, Behind Bayonets and Barbed Wire. It's the, uh, the film is, well, it's a story of American POWs in World War II who surrendered after their heroic and hard-fought defense of the Philippines. They were sent to the city of Mukden, uh, today called Shenyang, in Chinese Manchuria by the Japanese army, where they were condemned to spend the rest of their lives working as slave labor in factories to produce war materials for their enemy. It's a really well-told documentary about a story that I, some people will be somewhat familiar with, but, it, but not in the detail and the depth that this film uh, does uh, behind bayonets and barbed wire. Richard L. Anderson, director of the film, is with us today. Richard, welcome to Film School. Well, good morning to you and to your listeners. Thank you. Uh, we will get into your other career you're now a director, but you have also been an award, Academy Award-winning uh, sound designer, uh, as well as uh, a, a storied history uh, in in film. But this is your uh, the documentary that, uh, like as I said, a lot of people may know some some part of the story about uh, the Bataan Death March. But tell us what prompted your involvement in this film project. Well, I got involved when I met some people from Shenyang who came, uh, and I was invited to go there because they wanted someone to write a script about the story. So what they wanted was not a documentary, but a uh, a regular narrative or what what most people would call like a Hollywood film with all actors and special effects and that sort of thing. So I did write that, and uh, we're still trying to get that funded to make the movie, but... um, Last year was the 70th anniversary of the war, so the producer was able to get some money uh, to make this lower-budget documentary version. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I liked about doing it was that when I wrote the original script, they were in a hurry to get it done, so... I did a lot of research with books and and things like that, but I and I've been to the excellent museum in uh, now now called Shenyang, but they have an excellent uh, museum where the camp uh, was, mm-hmm. and uh, so I'd done a lot of research, but I didn't have the time at the, to, at, at back then to track down the survivors of this uh, horrible experience, mm-hmm. so. Uh, what I really treasured about this was they ra- they arranged to uh, that we could go out and interview this. Uh, I'd probably say most of the people who still were alive from this experience, mm-hmm. and it was wonderful to get to meet them and hear their stories firsthand. Well, in broad terms, because we want people to go see this film, because in addition to archival footage, you also spent, as you just alluded to, a lot of time <clears throat> with the survivors, They obviously at a point in their lives where they aren't going to be around for much longer. And so it's... Uh, right. It's, they range from about 93 to 98. Yeah. Which and is, that was last year, so you have to add a plus one. Yeah. Well, and so... Um, the, the sort of the broad outlines I said in the intro, I sort of gave an idea of what happened. But it, add to that, we we know that these were captured American soldiers. 
what was it about what was the decision to essentially the by on the part of the Japanese to do what they did to these American soldiers well we there was a hard fought campaign in the Philippines in in starting right after Pearl Harbor and continuing all the way into May of 1942 and uh, the US troops if they had uh, sufficient supplies they could have kept fighting who knows what would have happened mm -hmm. but unfortunately they were they were cut off by blockade by the Japanese uh, uh, navy and also eventually they had to surrender because they were they had ran out of food and ammunition mm -hmm. so the problem was is there were huge numbers of Americans and um, Filipino soldiers also, which were fighting underneath the American army. And the Japanese were, in a way, where they were overwhelmed. They didn't know what to do with all these prisoners, um, especially the, the, the infamous Bataan Death March. What they were worried about was that... Um, that some of these prisoners would escape and get to the island of Corregidor, where the Americans under General Wainwright were still holding out. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to move them as far away from that area as possible. So they decided to march them up the 60, I think it's 66 miles to Camp O'Donnell, and uh, where they had a big prison camp that they were going to put them in. And the problem was that they just didn't have the supplies. They didn't have food. They didn't really have water. And uh, quite frankly, the Japanese were really mad at the Americans because the general, uh, Homa, who had, had said that he was going to defeat the Americans in, I forget how much, like a, two weeks or something. And, and it turned into a many, many months campaign. Mm -hmm. So um, they wanted, you know, they kind of wanted a little revenge. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, they got it. Yeah. Well, this was, you know, the terrain was I was mostly uh tropical rainforest kind of stuff. It was a it was a difficult. Not only is it 66 miles a long ways, but without food and well supplies and also without uh and then the terrain itself added to all of this. The temperature, all there's so many things that contributed to these people uh dying, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. They were. In, we were. They were in the Philippines, in the, which is near the equator, in the summer, you know, in May, and uh, and it was hot, and and um, there wasn't enough water, and for some reason the Japanese wouldn't let them stop for water, even if there was water. I'm not sure why, but so uh, there's stories in the movie, and well, and real life where men were killed just because they tried to drink water. Right. You know, imagine imagine spending, say, six days in a hot, hot march, and uh, you're not allowed to drink any water. Yeah. No, it's... You know, it was, it was really horrible. Um, yes. There's really no excuse for it, but... Uh, and unfortunately, I think at the time, the Japanese had this theory that they were the greatest in the world, and and, uh, and it, they're part of their military... Their, uh, thinking called uh, Bushido uh, was that if you surrendered, it meant you weren't had no longer had any honor and you were worthless, essentially. Mm -hmm. And the film uh, Behind Bayonets and Barbed Wire is opening today at, in uh, theaters. Uh, it is at the Lemley Music Hall Theater 3 in Los Angeles. That's on Wilshire Boulevard. That's a great right, venue. Right, at Doheny. At Doheny. Right, at Doheny and Wilshire. Uh, are you in town for a Q&A &A tonight at the theater? 
I don't know if they have that scheduled or not. I'm going to be at the 7.30 showing, but I'm not sure if they have a Q&A scheduled. Oh, I will bet money they do. And, and, okay. And if and if nothing else, the opportunity for an audience to go there and at least catch you in the lobby to talk about the film. I'm I would be shocked if they did not have you up for a Q&A. All right. Well, I'll find out tonight. But <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to go. It's always fun to see your film with an audience, yes. as opposed to uh, what you think people are going to react to it. Yeah. Um. The and and in addition to yourself, the film is uh, co-directed by and if, help me out. Is it Shen? Huafeng? Dan Haofeng. Haofeng. Um, tell me a little bit about their involvement in the film. Well, this is a true co-production. They, uh, they were involved from the China end, and we did all our planning on Skype and email. Mm-hmm. And then we met in Washington, D.C., uh, where I was going through the National Archives to find what film and uh, uh, pictures we could get there. And then... And then we we traveled across the country, the U.S. in the, in this little caravan of uh, like a couple of vans and things with our equipment. And because it seems like all the guys who existed, I mean, the guys who still were alive, were all in smaller towns across this country. So we would go and we would interview them. Well, I was, and then okay. and then we figured out. Um, I would kind of figure out what stories of what they had said we should shoot recreations on. Mm-hmm. And uh, so well, that's... The, the recreations themselves were shot at the in Well, the jungle stuff was shot, uh, <laughs> not, not there. But the prison camp stuff was shot in the actual prison camp, oh. it, which is, like I said, today is a museum. Yeah. And so we were able to shoot in the, some of the actual buildings. So it's very realistic. Yeah, I, I thought the reenactments were quite good and uh, added to the story. It's always it's always difficult in doing something like that, a reenactment where you where uh, you want to capture the essence, you want to be historically correct, you want to you want to pay service to the the story. You don't want to detract from it. You want to add to the telling of the story. And I thought you did a nice job with that. Well, thank you very much. I mean, that was the problem. I know the the there's the pure documentarian movement that you can only you know, put in a documentary things that are a hundred percent true, like like the interviews of the people, or or maybe the period film. But we realized that they were telling us all these great stories, and of course, the Japanese didn't film these things happening. Right, right. It would have made them look bad. And uh, not only that, but in 1940, to film something with a movie was a very complicated process involving large cameras and things like that. So. The only film that exists of the actual camp at that time is some fil- footage that was shot, I guess, by the like the sing- Signal Corps or something after the film was liberated. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, we have some of that at the end of the movie, and you see the guys standing around in front of the barracks and uh, and them them holding the rifles. What happened was they were liberated by the Russian army because you know the American army wasn't anywhere close to that. Uh, the Mu- Russian army came down from the north and liberated them, and they basically said, took the rifles from the Japanese and gave them to the Americans and British. I should say there was all Allied soldiers were up there, not just Americans. Right. And now all of a sudden the prisoners were in charge of the uh, of the prison. Yeah. Well, I, I, by the way, we're speaking with Richard L. Anderson. He is the director of of the new film. 
Behind Bayonets and Barbed Wire, it is screening tonight as we speak. This is uh, November 11th, 2016 at the Music Hall, the Lemley Music Hall 3 Theater in Los Angeles. And I believe you'll be there for your Q&A tonight. You'll be there, and I believe they will have a Q&A for you, so check it out. You have an opportunity to, to speak with Richard on the film. Um, in terms of, just I'm so- happy to talk to the people, even if we don't have an official Q and A. Oh, that's there we you can go. have a one-on-one Q and A. That's right. Grab a cup of coffee right down the street. There, there's a lot of places you guys can hang out, if not in the lobby. But I, I'm anyway. Well, well, I'm sure there'll be some version of that tonight. So, so check it out. See the film. There's uh, there is uh, a story to be told here about bravery, about perseverance, about people who survived. Uh, under the most horrific of circumstances. Uh, Richard, in terms of making this movie, what was sort of logistically, you you described how you traveled around the country to capture the story of these survivors. Um, What was the biggest challenge in making this film? Well, just finding these people was hard. Luckily, we had uh, uh, an organization. uh, There's these veterans organizations that are sometimes very specific Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one called the American Defenders of Bataan and Corregidor, which is for all uh, veterans who are in the Philippine campaign. Gotcha. Uh, but only a small amount of the people, around uh, 1,600 or so initially, of the Americans were sent up to Mukden. Mm-hmm. The reason was is that these guys had some sort of technical knowledge, like they'd worked in factories or knew how to do what would have been sort of high-tech for 1940. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the Japanese wanted what it wanted help at uh, these. Mukden was sort of like uh, a Detroit at the time. It still is a big industrial city, but at the time it was sort of a, uh, like a Detroit for Japan. They produced a lot of war materials there, and it was far far enough inland that at least initially, until much later in the war, uh, it couldn't be reached by bombers or anything. Mm-hmm. So. That was the reason these guys were selected to be sent up there. But, you know, the majority of the POWs in the Philippines stayed in the Philippines. Now, what's been the reaction to the film by the survivors, by their family? I'm sure you've screened it for for those people. Actually, we haven't yet. I'm just not. We just kind of finished it. I've got to send them, probably send them DVDs because, you know, they're all 90-something. And they all live in these small towns. There's nobody that lives near either New York or L.A. where the movie's screening. Oh, so I've been, I've just been, I actually I've been uh, just, I've been corresponding with them and trying to arrange so we can send them a DVD. Well, I'm confident, okay? I'm confident uh-huh. they're going to like your film. and I'm, 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 I hope so. Yeah. You know, the one, the one thing you get with the, you know, the real people is they'll say, oh, no, that would have been over more over to the left or something, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Yes, there'll always be that, but the spirit is there. the 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 chance to celebrate their their heroism, that their to celebrate their service to the country under the most, as I said, some of the most horrific conditions imaginable. Something in the in the neighborhood of how many people do they estimate died during this? Uh, during well, this? four. Well. Thousands died in the Bataan Death March. Yeah, uh, but it, at Mukden, I think that 400 died the first winter from disease, and and they, and they never really got enough to eat right. uh, for what you know enough enough calories for what they were doing. It, it wasn't an attempt, uh, maybe unlike the German camps, it wasn't an an attempt to exterminate the uh, American prisoners. It was just that 
either they couldn't get enough food or they didn't estimate how much many calories a large American soldier needed as opposed to a smaller Japanese soldier. I'm not sure why, but they never got enough food to eat. You know, it seems the whole thing seems very strange to me because if you had a horse, you would and you needed the horse to pull your wagon, you'd think you would feed the horse enough oats or whatever that it would be you know, maintain its health and to be able to work for you, but somehow they never got enough food. Yeah. And the other weird thing about... The thing I wanted to say about the movie that amazed me was the spirit of these guys. You know, imagine... Because they didn't know what was going to happen. Imagine if you were captured and sent to some godforsaken place that was tremendously cold in the winter. It would get down to, like, minus 30 or 40 degrees at times at night. And... And then they tell you you're going to be there for the rest of your life. And if you you have good behavior, in 20 years, maybe your family will be allowed to come visit you. Yeah, just... So um, yeah. they're stuck up there. But they tried to resist as much as possible. Yeah. Well, that's that, part of that's the story. That's to me interesting is the human spirit, yeah. no matter how it's, it's crushed and, and tried to be confined and controlled, there's something about the human spirit that we, or at least as Americans, we rebel and we try to get our own way. Yeah. These guys tried to continue the war effort as much as possible by screwing things up in the factories. It's a remarkable story on so many levels, and, and congratulations to you and your team uh, and your co-director, Shen Haofeng, uh, yes. for the work. See I'm the th- sorry, Shen couldn't come because he's in the middle of shooting a uh, Chinese TV series. Okay. Well, you can see this film tonight, uh, audience members of uh, the Film School family, to see it tonight at the, at the Lemley Music Hall 3 in Beverly Hills, L.A., Beverly Hills, same thing, uh, right. right there at Doheny and Wilshire. Uh, and you will have an opportunity. And not just tonight. It's, it's oh, yeah. there all, all week. week. All week. Pardon me. You're right. Uh, and so you'll have an opportunity to, to talk to an Academy Award-winning sound design um, uh, artist, uh, and as well as a director of this particular film, behind bayonets and barbed wire. That would be Richard L. Anderson. Thank you so much for being here on Film School. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's all it's hard to sometimes for films like this to get the exposure to the public that you know that a Doctor Strange or something gets a lot of attention, but yes. it's hard for these films to be seen. So I really appreciate your getting the word out. My pleasure. It's a good film, to, and go see it, and uh, and have a cup of coffee with Richard L. Anderson in the lobby of the uh, Lemley Music All 3. Thank you so much, Richard, for being here. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.